everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. We are recording. Hey, everybody. Wayne Dorband and Mark Shepard and Jeffrey Caston and our staff in Colorado from all over the world. Uh, Mark in Africa, myself in Salt Lake, and Jeffrey in Portugal. Welcome. We're glad to have you here. And uh, we've been chatting a little bit as we before we get started with some of our uh, attendees. Thank you guys for interacting. And I just got an offer from Naomi to introduce me to uh, a, 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 a hostel uh, or farming operation here in the, uh, <laughs> that sounded bad, a hostel farming, a, um, <laughs> a group here locally um, who has a hostel type, of, uh, type situation, hostel meaning a living place, not hostel meaning hostile, um, and that's awesome. And I was going to say, again, these, these presentations are great, Mark has been amazing, um, if you guys don't listen to them, um, we've now got um, poultry-related um, presentations on Tuesday nights. And a little bit of an announcement, we're going to start next week on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Um, California time, because our speaker's in California, doing um, what we're going to broadly call alternative health care, alternative health concepts, not care. Um, set series and a guy that's an amazing expert in that area named Mike Warren will be leading that. He won't be speaking every month, every week, excuse me, but uh, he'll have guests and he'll do a, his first series is going to be on improving your immune, your immune health. And um, so next week I'll interview him just so you all can get a chance to know him a little bit. And then um, after that we'll begin teaching and on that subject. So again, the idea is to uh, just get you as much information. But more important than anything is the way you guys share with each other on the Facebook page, here when we're live, and so on. And let me give you something that I'm so proud of you guys for that we're doing that. And then another circumstance going on in the sort of the the, uh, the permaculture green world right now that isn't quite again they're not getting that positiveness. And so I'm going to encourage you to get involved with it. Um, Alex Groom, Alexandra Groom of Regeneration International has been doing a, um, an interactive session every two weeks since um, I think February or March and supposed to have done it last week and it's, it's, it's for people who want to speak and people who want to listen. It's done on a platform called Zoom. It's not quite as easy as GoToWebinars to use but still pretty easy. And she canceled last week because she didn't have enough interest. And then she rescheduled for this week. Um, and she and I talked today. And if you guys have a chance, and I'll let her know if you just send me an email or I'll put something in the chat for you to get notified. Actually, send an email because the chat doesn't persist after we're over here. Um, so I'd have to memorize it. But anyway, that's a group that we you know, encourage that if you guys could get involved with at all. Um, on these interactive chats that go on there. It's not teaching, it's really just people sharing about whatever their interest topics are 
So you, if you had something you wanted to share about, you'd go on as a speaker, but or you could just go on and listen. But I'll get the info for that and put it on the uh, on the, the web page, and then you can know about it. So let's go ahead and get started. I'm just going to turn it over to Mark. He's already got a slide up on the on the screen, and he's going to be controlling things. And so here we go, Mark. It's all yours. Ujumbo habarigani. Greetings from uh, Nakuru, Kenya, tonight. I've been in attendance at a workshop uh, with the World Agroforestry um, World Agroforestry <laughs> World, World Agroforestry Center and um, World Vision uh, have have been sponsoring uh, a lot of what they're calling um, farmer farmer managed natural regeneration, where they're they're uh, teaching farmers how to uh, interact and manage. Uh, coppice stumps, re-sprouts of trees in the landscape to get uh, various different agricultural landscapes re-treed. They're not necessarily focusing on, on uh, food trees, they're just concentrating on trees in general because people need firewood, um, they need fodder for their animals and so on. And uh, they have some very fascinating data and satellite uh, imagery to back it up. There are literally millions of acres uh, within and, and around Africa that have been uh, essentially reforested, lightly reforested. Uh, I think I think what they were saying is some 70% some, um, some of agricultural land in um, Africa has over 10% tree cover. Uh, and it comes in various different forms from windbreaks to mar field margins and so on. And I was brought here because uh, no one there uh, has yet seen anybody that has put like a whole complete system together from water management to food production, fodder, fuel, uh, livestock integrated in with the system and the marketing uh, afterwards that follows it. So I, I was brought on to do that and what really wowed them of course was the water management and I know we were talking about uh, forest ecology, we were in the middle of disturbance. Uh, we'll continue with that uh, as soon as I get back to the states which probably I will be next week. Uh, but in the meantime, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show an expanded version of the presentation that I gave before the uh, before the group today. And what's what's fascinating is that this was the first time that they were able to get uh, uh, this workshop has is for the equivalent of our extension, their ag extension agents in Kenya. Um, there were several uh, high-ranking officials, head of state, uh, like a secretary of agriculture for Kenya was here. Governor of the province was here, um, and so uh, the leveraging of uh, us being able to get really good, useful ideas into you know the politics and the agricultural extension system is pretty amazing. And I just met a guy um, before I before I came here. It's two thirty in the morning, by the way, for me. Uh, he's he's the tribal elder in his group in northeastern Kenya. They border on Sudan. They were traditionally fishermen. They uh, they all reside around their villages or around a, a gigantic lake, one of the largest, top ten, I guess, largest lakes in the world. Uh, but the lake is entirely filled from water that comes from Sudan, and dam building in Sudan has cut off uh, the majority of the water supply. So they've had to become land-based, and they're gone pastoralist and uh, and light farming. Um, homestead scale farming uh, and the water management techniques that I'm going to talk about tonight 
just knocked his socks off, and I spent quite a bit of time with him, and it's, it's entirely possible that uh, we'll be going there at some point in time to implement water management systems like this on their agricultural lands across a whole district, like the whole northeastern, you know, quarter, smaller than a quarter, actually, but, you know, northeastern tenth of, of Kenya, which is pretty cool. Um, if only our politicians would catch on like that and start implementing restoration agriculture and uh, uh, permaculture ideas nationwide. Some of the data that also came out uh, that we'll talk about later at some point in time is, did you know, and I'm assuming everybody says, no, I did not know this, except for maybe Wayne, because I, I sent him the, uh, the links to the research. Worldwide, carbon sequestration in agricultural lands has actually increased in the last 10 years. And worldwide, uh, forest cover has actually increased within the last 10 years. We don't hear that in the states. One of the reasons why we don't hear that in the states is that uh, one of the number one uh, countries in the world for loss of soil carbon and site carbon is the United States of America. We are one of the leaders, one of the worst countries in the world when it comes to the degrading of our agricultural land. There's data, facts, and figures, satellite. Uh, imagery to, to back this up. Evidently, we shouldn't hear that because uh, we're the greatest country in the world. And then, uh, of course, uh, deforestation, it has made the news recently. Uh, no, Brazil is not the leader in deforestation, although a lot of us you know, have been led to believe that. Brazil has actually turned around and increased forest cover in the last 10 years. Canada is the, is the world leader in uh, deforestation. So some of the efforts towards um, ecosystem restoration that I've been involved with is this presentation right here and I'll, I'll fly through it pretty quick. This is a, a summary of the water management techniques that I used. Uh, it was, I started doing this 20 years ago uh, with the book from um, uh, P.A. Yeomans called Water for Every Farm that described the key line design technique which is all the rage and everybody's talking about it in the permaculture world but hardly anybody's read the book and far fewer people uh, even understand what the book says because this guy, although he was literate and theoretically spoke and wrote in English, it's very incomprehensible, difficult to read, uh, and he had to invent a whole bunch of new language that, uh, uh, that other uh, folks in the stormwater, rainwater management, agricultural uh, sector did not use the language that he uses, so it's a little confusing. So I, I started with keyline design and made adaptations because where I live in Wisconsin is a very um, complex watershed um, uh, on the headwaters of the Mississippi River, which is the most complex river system on the planet. And I won't get into the details on stream order, but it's a, a 14th order stream. I mean, this stream adds to that stream, adds to this stream 14 times before it gets to the sea. So anyways, this photo on the uh, what we see on a computer screen right here is a project we did in uh, uh, north central Tanzania and uh, quite often I'm called to a site we have limited tools, limited resources and we have to scrabble things together to make it work. Um, we were able to find out the uh, details that they get about 35 inches of rain a year which is plenty of rain uh, but how it happens is March through May in torrential thunderstorms, and those of you who are, are from the Midwestern USA are familiar with really rock and roll thunderstorms. Uh, I, trust me, you've never seen a thunderstorm until you've seen uh, an East African thunderstorm in all of its glory. Just amazing torrential downpours. 
but then it gets no rain for nine months and it's tropical. It's 90 to 100 degrees every single day and it's, you know, 70 to 80 degrees every single night. So what happens is all that water strikes the land, concentrates in the valleys and flows away incredibly fast. Uh, huge erosion problems, which we'll see. So our design goals at this site was to prevent that erosion, to retain that rainfall on the site, spread it out, slow it down, soak it in, so that the water is now stored within the soil uh, and the, uh, the, the soil will be um, reach its field capacity and have, have plenty of moisture in there available for plant growth. Then we'll eventually transition this site to uh, edible perennial polycultures, uh, first for feeding children at a school. If my cursor shows up, up in this corner here where there's going to be a school uh, built and a uh, residential home for uh, abandoned children. And uh, so this is the first, and this, this is not uh, corn, this is not maize, this is sorghum. Uh, this field is part of a sugar operation. They do uh, cane down in the, in the valley bottom for sugar cane and sorghum up in the highlands. And uh, it's all, all planted by machine, but then it's hand harvested uh, later on. So the changing of the orientation of the rows is not too much of a challenge for this, for this system. But this system is designed around machine planting of, of sorghum. In the off-season, they'll grow lentils or uh, uh, chickpeas. So here's a, this is an 80-acre field. Um, we're looking at probably 60 acres of it in the opposite direction here. Now, before we did this master line system, you see all the, uh, the exposed dirt that's part of our, our swales and berms, our ditches and mounds, whatever you want to call them. Um, before we did it, all the water, of course, concentrates in the uh, primary valleys, and we'll talk about vo vocabulary with uh, land shapes later on, and it runs downhill, and it concentrates in the larger uh, main valleys, and then as it, as it uh, reaches the bottom, the water now uh, starts as a sheet up top, begins little rivulets, then it turns into some channels, and then in, into streams, and then for the time it hits the bottom of these slopes, it's in flash flood mode, and, and I kid you not, this site can really flash flood, as you will see. So what happens, though, is uh, the entire year's water supply goes away. Now, prior to this being cleared for agriculture, it was a savanna. We can see the remnants all around here. It's, it's partially open, partially shaded, some tree cover, mostly grass cover. There was, uh, there was very little evidence of pre-agricultural erosion. So this, this field was cleared from its savanna status the permanent ground cover goes away, so water infiltration is, is drastically reduced. You till the soil, uh, it gets rained on, the sun strikes that soil, the clay bakes hard in the tropical sun, it's now an impermeable surface. The next rainfall that hits it doesn't soak in, runs off. So what happens is by doing annual agriculture in this particular situation here, you make flooding worse and you send the water away faster, so the whole entire year's supply of water gets washed away, now you have drought and you wonder why your crops don't grow. So you call in a crazy guy like me that just uh, helps you to rearrange your fields. As you can see, the result is a certain degree of erosion. You see these channels start to happen right here. Uh, so from that side of the field where my cursor is pointing here to where I'm standing right now, it's, it's, uh, it's only 100 feet or so, and behind me would be another 330 feet of this field. But you see this gully already starting in the middle of the agricultural field. Um, you can just tell that behind me it's getting worse. Well, this is part of how worse it's getting, is this section of the field right here has been abandoned. This was farmed uh, 
at least a year prior, but this erosion gully has gotten so deep, try to drive the tractor across it and it'll, they'll get stuck in that gully. Well, of course, the water from all upslope, it's all concentrated from all these hills in this direction, comes down to this main valley, then it all goes this way, and it gets bigger and bigger and more erosive, and look at that erosion channel that it's starting to carve there. Now, this fellow right here is six foot tall, and he'll show up in the next picture, um, but you can't see him because he was a, he's in a shadow, and when my camera took the picture, it, uh, he doesn't show up. He's standing down in here in the rocks. And so what this is, this is 30 feet of uh, red volcanic, um, volcanic-derived soil on top of bedrock. So they have an amazing subsoil column uh, for converting the, the subsoil into topsoil, which is part of the process of what we're going to do. And you see all these tree roots going across. This is, this is where the tree roots, this is where the soil used to be. Somebody once said, wow, it's amazing how the trees can send their roots across the air. Well, they can't. They were going through the soil once upon a time. Now, so Mark, talk uh, and tell us, tell us how deep that is right there, where we're seeing so from the from the soil surface right down to the bottom. From here to here is thirty feet deep. Wow, thirty feet <laughs> deep erosion gullies to the bedrock, and it, and it continues down here. It's even deeper down here, and and uh, uh, they've blown up. Uh, it's just it's just uh, this. Annual agriculture should not be practiced this way in, in you know, these parts of the world. It's just it's crazy. Hyper-erosive. Uh, once we get the water managed, we get tree cover on it and get a perennial cover, maybe alternate strips. Annual agriculture shouldn't be left out of the equation. It's very useful. We can we get an incredible yield out of it. However, it's incredibly destructive when, when done, um, done this way. It just really is. What we're going to do here, this is the field is uh, we start by finding a key point in the valley. And like I said, at another time when I go more in-depth into the water management system, uh, we'll, we'll go over that. But if you look at your hand and you see where you're, the valley between your knuckles, little hills in your knuckles, uh, turns into a web between your fingers, uh, all of a sudden it turns into space between your fingers. See, right where the the joint or the junction of your fingers and your hand is. That's the key point in a primary valley. So following samples, um, we'll go to the key point, and at that key point is where we'll start our system and design it. So when we went to that key point, this is what we found. And typically what we'll do is we'll start with a with a pond, a small excavated pond. Uh, that now I'm, now I'm hearing myself. What happened? Okay. So we start with a small excavated pond that is uh, intended only to capture the surge event rainfall, uh, fill up partially, or, and then, then flow through the channels and spread the water out through the rest of the system. This is designed as an overflow system, so when the, when the rains come, the ponds will catch that big, huge rain and spread the water out to the ridges. So we couldn't build our pond there, so we moved uphill a little bit, and we started by excavating a pond and then started excavating a swale uh, going slightly downhill. This, if this is the key point right here, there's a small excavated pond there. This blue line uh, goes downhill gently at a 1% slope and brings, instead of the water being concentrated in the valley flowing there, contributing to the erosion, it now spreads out to the ridge. And to make it easy to machine, 
we, uh, we then make a parallel, uh, all of our fields now, the alleys, this is, a, going to be, this is going to be an agroforestry system, the alleys are now parallel, and the width is determined by the type of agriculture that they're going to be using, the rainfall events, uh, the frequency of the rain, if it's a torrential thunderstorm, which it is in this case, and this is this will be designed. I believe we made this one to be eight passes with uh, their tractor wide. So eight times six is uh, yeah, 48, isn't it? So we made these alleys 50 feet wide with a swale, then a berm, and then we're going to couple that with tree planting. And we uh, go parallel in the up direction. And if the water doesn't flow the way we want to. If you're doing a purist key line design, if you start at the key point, make a one channel uh, perfectly on contour, then you go parallel. The slope of those channels will go from the valley to the ridge. But we're not, the, the lake is too complex for a purist key line system, so we're just going to stick with the parallelism. When we stick with the parallelism, sometimes these secondary parallel lines don't go in the don't go downhill the way we want them to. So the bottom of the channel, we dig deeper in order to make the water flow the direction that we want. We want to get this water out of this valley, prevent that erosion, spread it out across the rest of the fields, and soak it in. And we continue with our parallel channels all the way up the slope. Once we've hit the top of the property, we now go parallel down. And uh, so that's the basis right there of our uh, alley cropping system. All of the spaces between blue lines are now our agricultural fields, there are alleys, uh, and the slope of these fields is no more than a 1% slope downhill. And so uh, from here to here, the water now, instead of going down this valley, will now hit, try to go down the valley, and then move out towards the, uh, towards the ridge. This is designed to capture the water, spread it out, slow it down, soak it in. Then what we start to do is we make these small little excavations. Every time there is a minor valley going through here called the primary valley, uh, we would make a tiny little uh, what we call drive-through ponds. They're just uh, shallow excavations. Why we call them drive-through ponds is because they're designed so that uh, when the rain comes, they fill up full of water. The water will come down from here, will go in, fill up this little pond, then overflow, fill up this little pond, and overflow, and then this is an outlet channel, a level sill. Um, we call these drive-throughs because when, uh, when the sun does come out, the rain, so you know, water soaks, some soaks in, some evaporates, you're able to drive your equipment this way through the system. So we can just drive right through this, this surge protection pond. Now these uh, outlet channels have to be uh, designed, do a little bit of math, you can ask a question, Wayne, or are you just sniffing your nose? It's just a nose sniff. These have to be uh, designed. We have to calculate how much water this little uh, piece of land will collect and how much will it shed in a, in a typical rainfall event so that when it rains, the water comes through here, and then we spread it out. Uh, so when it comes at this uh, structure right here, it's perfectly level, perfectly on contour. Uh, there is no berm here. There's a swale and a berm here. No berm here. The water is, is uh, now sheets across here in a wide sheet instead of flowing in a channel here. Uh, there's now less of it because some of it is soaked in, and it's spread out in a wide uh, sheet. And we start in the upper part of the, 
of the uh, of the farm field because if we started down here and you got a rain while you're under construction all this water would come pouring down here and slam into your little ponds and blow it out so we start up high in the landscape when we're beginning our excavation and we continue the process downward every time this swale line crosses a, a primary valley you'll see how these little drive-through ponds line up every time the swale crosses a primary valley we make a drive-through pond so the water will run down this channel fill this pond run down this way fill this pond run down this way the upper upper uh, system now adds to it so this level sill has to be designed to take all of this water plus any uh, surplus that came from here and have it exit in a nice level sheet across the landscape so this one gets larger and we continue the process downhill another uh, drive through pond in the primary valley and a level sill uh, as the outlet to sheet across up into this channel and um, notice the ponds, the, the larger the primary valley, the larger the drive-through pond ends up being, and the larger the alley is, that means the, the, the width of this alley times the length of this alley gives us the area of this, this field, uh, you know, this newly described field. Then any overflow from the above channels, we have to add that water to this, and then any uh, water that comes from off-site, we have to add that to it so we know the capacity that we have to build into the system based on the uh, average rains that we can expect. And so uh, now what has happened, you can see we've got all these different ponds through the system and we have the, um, the, the swales that are capturing it. We have designed into this system enough storage capacity to be able to swallow the typical uh, um, high large rainfall event that would hit this particular site. Uh, instead of the water being highly erosive, it fills all these ponds. Uh, these larger ponds here uh, are, are designed to hold water year-round, um, or at least as long as we can through the dry season, which in this case is nine months tropical hot. Uh, but if nothing else, it serves to water, uh, water livestock. Or it can be used for irrigation water with a simple hose you can drop it in this pond and you bring it over here and as a siphon you can siphon the water out throughout this whole system so if you have a drip irrigation system you can siphon the water out and have everything dripped or uh, if you have water in these channels and uh, you just want to take it out of here you can go ahead and, and start siphoning it off and um, hose out into the system and just let it run and it will run and then charge the rest of the system so what ends up happening if you're going to use these ponds for irrigation is you'll use or, or watering livestock you water out of here first well then this has no water anymore you can siphon from here to there and then as this runs out of water you can siphon from here to there and here to here here to here so you have all of the water is, is you're able to manage it on this site uh, purely by gravity uh, because we're not making your typical dams, we're not building a uh, constructed dam here, we're digging holes in the ground, uh, we aren't able to just like break a channel through here and let the water, let the water flow for, for uh, flood irrigation. Um, we're encouraging drip or hose irrigation. And the hose irrigation typically in this system here, I will set it up, will be used to water the trees that will be planted along the uh, lower slope of the swale berm complex and the, the trees we'll see a lot of those later on um, everything from bananas to avocados to guavas passion fruit and breadfruit jackfruit 
This is the uh, this picture. This picture here is taken where I'm standing. Uh, if we now walk down here and walk up there, an 80-acre field is approximately one half of a mile, one half a mile wide or long. So just walk a half mile over here and look back towards where this picture is taken from, and we see this. Here's our tractor. Uh, one of the things that the key line technique does not do is it does does not really give you an easy way to connect the systems together and every single primary valley system has its own water management design uh, on a landscape like this or mine in the uh, upper Mississippi uh, watershed it becomes totally unreasonable to have that many water management um, patterns on your landscape especially because some of the primary valleys are so small and narrow the key line design uh, system was was originated in Australia, which is the hydrologically simplest uh, landform on the planet. Um, there's no stream that's more complex than a third order stream. The upper headlands, uh, water will collect in a little brook. It flows into a stream, flows into a river, flows to the sea. That's it. There's only third order streams in Australia. So when you when you take that simple technique and you try to apply it to complex landscape like the Mississippi uh, certain things just fall apart so what we've done here is we uh, using you know the, the system that we're calling the master line system because there's one line here that changes the hydrology of everything it's the sweet spot uh, the master line that changes the water flow everything is patterned off of that master line and we go parallel off that master line and this points to the master line on this particular field um, and we start the system all over again. We have our excavated pond at the uh, in the valley part. We make our parallels up. We make our parallels down. Here, remember though, these lines were derived off of the key point that's, that's behind me, and so the water flows this way, and then it flows out toward that ridge. These flow out towards that ridge. So all of this water that would have come down this valley now spreads out that way and we parallel up. What we did at one point in time, which is right here, is we changed the direction of the flow. If we kept paralleling, uh, the flow would go from here to there. But what we wanted to do is we wanted to get water to, to pond up here. We wanted to make a nice high saddle pond uh, in the landscape for watering livestock. And what's especially significant uh, of this spot over here is this uh, tree line right here, uh, inside the tree line, there's uh, what they call the road, and it's not really a road according to uh, how we would recognize a road. It's barely an expanded uh, footpath, a livestock path. And uh, what happens during the day is the, I'll go back a slide, a bunch of slides, I guess. If we look at, um, let's, let's slow to act. Okay, if you look back here, the road is just in the woods and it curves around here. And just over the other side of the hill is where the, uh, the, there's a local village. Several hundred people uh, reside in the village. Uh, they all, many of them have gardens around their homesteads. Uh, they, they grow maize and beans as staple crops. Um, and they, they raise livestock for milk and for meat, mostly goats and sheep and cattle. And so what they would do is, is the children, and there's no school in this particular village yet. That's why we're going to be building a school over here. Uh, the, the children's job is to go for a walk in the morning. The girls take uh, five-gallon 
you know, closed top five gallon jugs uh, and the boys take all the livestock and they walk down that road, they go an hour and a half down the mountain to the river, uh, the, wa the animals water, the girls fill up the water jugs and the girls put the jugs on their heads and then they walk back up the mountain probably takes them two hours if not two and a half hours plus they play down at the river and all that kind of stuff so probably half their day is spent making that first trip just to get water and then the girls just after doing chores at the house you know washing dishes and clothes uh, the girls go back down again to get water and come back up to the top of the hill whereas the boys wander with the livestock and graze all over the place so what we wanted to do is have a watering hole here so that uh, you know the, the kids' lives will be a lot easier because now all they have to do is go down here to get their water, they water the animals, um, and they bring water back to the, to the village. Then there will be enough time for them to have a middle of a day where they can actually go to school and uh, hopefully learn something. So that's why we changed the direction of the uh, uh, water flow. And with a, a swale, if a swale is a... Uh, water harvesting ditch perfectly on contour with a soft mound on the lower slope. I should be saying this in Australian. It's right out of a Jeff Lawton video. Look up Jeff Lawton swale plume on YouTube and you'll, uh, you'll see a great little, uh, little video on how swales work in the system. Well, if it's perfectly on contour, water doesn't flow. It just fills it up and it's horizontal and it soaks in. So if we have one that's perfectly horizontal, but we want the water to flow in a direction, you just lower the bottom of it. The bottom of the ditch over here can be three inches deep, and the bottom of the ditch can be like a foot and a half, two feet deep over here. Now you have a, uh, the bottom of the swale pitches in this direction. So that's how uh, we took all these different swales that, because of the geometry of the land and how we did the patterning by finding the key point, go parallel down and up, the swales naturally would pitch towards this ridge, but then this one, we dug the bottom deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Uh, the tool that we had uh, on the back of a tractor is called a disc plow, and uh, that was all we had available. It's, it's the only tractor for easily two hours, three hours away, and it's the only kind of digging tool that we had. Uh, it was woefully inadequate, so we did everything. We scratched the basic shape of the swale in place with the disc plow. Then we used people with uh, uh, their tool called a panga. You've seen it. It's the classic peasant hoe, the big, huge, gigantic hoe that they use for everything from, from cutting trees down to um, you know, chopping the ends off of hand-rolled cigars and stuff like that. It's used for a, to a, a hoe, a shovel. Um, so then we would scoop out the channels and make this one deeper to send it up to that pond. And we continue our parallels upslope. And on this one, uh, as you go parallel, if you start with any contour line on a ridge form, and then you start going parallel up from that line, the uh, channels will naturally flow to the ridge. And it's at the ridge where we would make a level sill. So all of these little uh, ridges here are where the water will exit as the rain comes down, flows to the ridge, fills up, and then it sheets across the ridge. So think about how radically different that is. Instead of water concentrating in the valley, turning into a channel and flowing away, we spread it from the valley to the ridge, and we spread it out in a sheet. So we've taken concentrated water flow in a valley, turned it into a sheet on the ridge. So we've gotten water now to the, to the highest, driest landforms uh, in the system. 
So, uh, of course, we do our parallels down below our, our master line as well. So if we look up top left here, we'll see by, we start by making our drive-through ponds in the, in the um, primary valleys, the valleys that concentrated the water and sent it down this way, and then a level sill on the ridge, and more drive-through ponds, level sill on the ridge, drive-through ponds, sill on the ridge. Now notice how these, these little drive-throughs line up. It's like, well, why didn't you put any over here? Well, there weren't any primary valleys or erosion channels going this way. This, as we excavate this line, this represents a low spot. And if we didn't address that low spot uh, with an excavated pond here and the material that we excavate out of here, see how there's a little bit more dark there? That does fill the low spot. So these little drive-through ponds do have uh, a little bit of berm that holds the water back. Instead of having the excavated part of the channel be what moves the water, on the, on the drive-throughs a little bit of the berm does have to hold water. So these get packed really, really firmly so the water will come in, fill this up and flow, fill this up and flow, fill this up and sheet across the ridge. Drive-through ponds in the primary valleys and level sills out on the ridge. Um, and then this right here was our, uh, actually this one was, this was our highest elevation uh, pond in the system. This was the one intended to be the watering hole. And so what we set up here, all of these ponds, once again, when a, when a torrential rain hits this place, the, all these ponds fill up, the, any overflow goes to the ridge, so now you have well-watered ridges and you know, evenly uh, watered fields because all this water is coming out and it, as it's going along these channels it's soaking into the ground uh, to be used for your crops. And You notice how the lines of the, the sorghum in this particular case go up and down this way. When they plant this the next time the lines will go left to right and since we've installed this system we started on this system two years ago I believe it is now the uh, agricultural crop will go left to right, and it's still machinable. Well, the next tool we use is a subsoiler. Uh, this is the shank uh, of a subsoiler. This is the shoe or the foot, some people call it. These are designed to be somewhat replaceable. You undo a bolt, you pull the pin, you put it on, because this, this is the action item right here. This does a lot of uh, bumping into rocks. It'll hit roots. Notice how it's sharpened on the edge. All we want to do now is cut slots in the ground so when the rain does come it will fill those slots full of water and uh, allow that water to soak in as deep as you can get those subsoiler slots in the ground. This is my hook here. I write about it in my book Restoration Agriculture. When I would first use it, it would only go in about this deep because all of the soil on, on uh, my farm was red clay, uh, similar to this site in, um, in Tanzania. Uh, and when I got to the end of the row and would lift up the hook, there'd be a chunk of clay stuck to the sides of this that I'd have to scrape off with a shovel. Well, over time, as the water goes into these slots, roots from the perennial grasses go in, there's roots from the trees, uh, and the, the roots exude uh, sugars into the soil that feeds the soil food web. Um, the soil microbiota, uh, microfauna actually, uh, they poop and they pee, they reproduce, they die, some roots slough and, it, and they die. That decomposition is now, these are all carbon compounds that have been taken out of the air by the plants, injected into the ground as roots and, and sugars. Uh, all of that carbon 
in the in the soil decays and is what that's what turns the topsoil from a red color in our case to black. It's all that carbon put into the soil. And this is one of the tools that we use to help get water into the into the soil. Um, on agricultural fields, you can use this maybe once every couple or three years. Um, if you're going to be planting a row of trees, you'll want to use it next to your row of trees every single year so your tree roots don't come out into your alley and rob nutrients and moisture from your trees because they will and you'll have lower crop yields immediately next to your row of trees if you, uh, if you let the roots run into your, um, into your alley, into your crop field. Uh, this is a uh, yeoman's plow, a key line. Key line plow is another name for it. And the, the most significant, it's just a glorified subsoiler. You can go to kingcutter.com, K-I-N-G-K-U-T-T-E-R, get a single shank subsoiler for less than 200 bucks, or you can order a yeoman's plow, uh, and the least expensive yeoman's plow that I've seen is about $8,000. I got this one from... Um, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, whatever, a uh, friend of a friend passed away. This is one of the first yeoman's plows ever brought to the USA. Uh, his plow went to someone who didn't use it, and I bought it from them. And uh, originally, I could not pull this with my tractor. You need about 25 horsepower per shank to pull a subsoiler. Um, so these two shanks would need a 50-horsepower tractor. Well, when I first bought this, uh, it's about eight years ago now, um, it would have required a uh, 50 horsepower tractor to pull it. My 40 horsepower tractor couldn't do it. Um, so I sold the sub, this subsoiler to Gary Zimmer of Midwestern Bioag. Uh, he never used it. Well, then five years later, I bought it back from him because I'm doing a lot more installation jobs, uh, these water management systems around the country. And so I figured I needed one. I brought it back to my farm, put it on my tractor. I was able to actually use it. So I could pull a two shank yeoman's plow with only a 40 horse tractor, uh, I think mostly in part because we, over the years, I've been using this hook for almost 20 years. We've turned red clay, really thick, hard, heavy, sticky soil into a topsoil. And at year 15, I was not able to pull a two shank yeoman's plow with a 40 horse tractor, but at year 20, I could pull a two shank yeoman's plow with a 40 horse tractor. So uh, soil building, soil conditioning does take time. The water penetration is immediate right away. So what we do is we just take the tractor out after we set up our swales and our berms and our drive-through ponds and our overflow uh, level fills um, and our ridge ponds and then we take the tractor and we just drive in the alleys in between pulling that subsoiler so now you've got these little cracks in the ground for the water to immediately soak down in and for the roots of plants that you grow in that field, uh, it, would, it would probably, one of the best things that could have been done in this particular field is go immediately to pasture because then it would be managed pasture with improved water retention, improved growth in the grasses, and the uh, local villagers would be able to use it. But this farmer grows sugar, so he's going to grow sugar in it. If you, if you do the subsoiler, uh, there is some evidence showing that if you're using a subsoiler and don't immediately go into planting perennial grasses, you're not getting the root uh, influx that you need in order for this to be of a benefit. And you can actually cause the soil structure to collapse somewhat because that slot will close in, collapse on itself. 
there's no room in to pump it up and fill it back up again if you're going to stick with a annual, um, an annual crop such as corn or beans. Uh, small grains, you know, barley, wheat, uh, rye uh, have more root mass and would tend to um, not collapse the soil structure like you would on some of the more uh, bare soil crops. But this is just the subsoil pattern afterwards. Now you see this, there's hardly any chance for the water to escape this. So if before the rainy season, this is their standard procedure now for the past few years, before the rainy season in March, they go out and they subsoil the whole entire field and then they let it rain on it and they plant their crops uh, here on this particular part, they plant their crops partly into the rainy season and they rely on the residual moisture in the ground to, um, to grow and, and ripen their crop. Some things I want to point out. Last week uh, in talking about pit and mound architecture, uh, I mentioned the different microclimates that are shown. Well, this site here was done. This is in California on a south-facing slope. There's a Pacific Ocean over there. This person, you know, read, of course, that you put the swale and berm here, and then you plant your trees on the downhill slope. That's not always the appropriate place because look here, we got shade. If you're on a south-facing slope in the tropics or in California, if this gets baked in the sun, this is hotter and drier than anywhere else, even though there might be sub subsoil moisture here. Here, it might have been more appropriate to put the trees right in the shady spot so your roots are a little cooler and um, the water doesn't evaporate and the tree will actually grow a little bit better, so it's a little bit less stressful. So if you put trees here, that's a different micro site than if you put trees here, than if you put trees here, than if you put them on the lower slope. So don't just uh, dogmatically put the trees here because that's what you saw in a video somewhere. Think about what you're doing and how it affects the site conditions and plant accordingly. Uh, some other structures you might want to put are crossovers. You want to be able to cross over your swale and berm system, widen it, and you level it a little bit. And you can see here that the water still flows in this particular direction, but you can drive your vehicle straight through here. And notice the resemblance to pit and mound architecture. We, this this uh, includes the roots. This was a, a clear cut four years ago. This is in a southern pine savanna region. Um, the roots of the trees that were in the way simply get incorporated in the mound. The mound doesn't hold the water back. This is excavated below grade, so that's probably ground level there. And so it's the, the level of the um, excavated channel that actually holds the water and moves it, not the berm. Um, the berm is just there. The roots will decay. Um, other plants will grow on it. Here's another example of a drive-through, also in southern pine uh, savanna type system. And yet a third one, fourth. This, this, particular, this particular site, uh, we picked when installing a system, you want to pick a dry season to install it, but you want to have enough uh, moisture around to get grass established. So this site is in uh, um, uh, southern North Carolina. And we picked the, historically the driest season of the year. This site hadn't seen a hurricane since 1969, and the driest season of the year is mid-September. You know, a little rain happened. So we went in in mid-September. The third day of the job, uh, they got hit with their first hurricane. Um, their, their largest rainfall ever recorded in this area here was uh, six inches. But we got like 20 inches overnight. Um, but then the next week, we excavated all the stuff. We figured, hey, we just got our record rainfall. We'll be fine. Well, then we went and we finished the job, and we got hit with that second hurricane. I don't remember the name of it, but last September, the one that hit South Carolina and North Carolina did a tremendous amount of destruction. Our system, 
with bare soil, no grass holding in a place, actually held and it performed. It split the water up, spread it out, um, and soaked it in. Um, and we handled the, the second rainfall uh, was like two days of 18 inches one day and 20 inches the next day. And uh, when designed right, you can't just do this willy-nilly. You've got to design it according to the site and conditions. Now here in Africa, I'm working with this um, fair young man. This is Jane Goodall. And uh, she has recently become excited about restoration agriculture. And we're collaborating with her on uh, projects in Uganda. And um, it's uh, been funded. We now work through a nonprofit, two nonprofit organizations, but one, the primary nonprofit organization that we work through is the Valley, uh, what is it called? <laughs> the Valley Foundation, which is a, a private, uh, it's a private um, family foundation. And then we partner with Goodall Institute, World Wildlife Fund, um, a whole bunch of other different NGOs. Now what Uganda has is um, more chimpanzees than any other country in Africa and the green that you see here are chimpanzee preserves. And unfortunately, uh, these, the, the border of these chimpanzee preserves is just about that crisp and clean because people live right up to the edge of these preserves. Uh, their subsistence lifestyle, they uh, are a charcoal burning culture, so since time immemorial, they go to a place, you cut the trees down, you make charcoal, you sell the charcoal to earn money. Well, then when you have money, you can buy food, you try to grow a garden, you grow some animals to graze on the stuff, but in the tropics on poor soils uh, with torrential rains that then bake in the sun, what you end up with is you end up desertifying the land, and it's through management practices. A lot of people blame the animals. Oh, yeah, overgrazing, it's the animals. Well, yeah, it's overgrazing, but it's not the animals. It was the people who cut the trees down in the first place and then kept the animals in the same place too long and ate any regeneration that was coming back. So it was a management issue. That's what the farmer-managed uh, natural regeneration uh, movement is all about that uh, World History Center is working with. So what, some of our goals is to go to the villages, starting with the schools, and do a complete design water management and, and food production system at the schools. Then we'll make a buffer zone around the preserves of, of of plants that chimpanzees don't like, and then to connect the preserves with uh, with uh, restored corridors of foods that chimpanzees do like. And so the these light green dots are the school farms and the plant nurseries. The schools uh, not only do they set up their own particular uh, food um, system, uh, they will uh, start a little tree and shrub nursery so all the kids' parents can get um, um, specimens of the of the food plants that were and the timber plants that we're planting, and then any uh, revenues from sales of these plants to other farmers uh, in the neighborhood uh, can be used for the school programming and the replication of this model elsewhere. It takes four years when we, we train the kids to do this, and in their fourth year, uh, as a basically a senior in high school, they go to the next school district down the road and they help that school district set up a similar system. So the the Aqua is the timbered buffer zone and the green is the riparian zone. The Goodall Institute in this region right up here in northwestern Uganda already has several different places where they've gone to areas where the river uh, has dried up for the past 10 or 15 years because all the trees were cut down, there's no more water infiltration, agriculture has made the soil impervious, all that water runs away, all the erosion, the silt clogs the river. Well, by doing riparian zone, streamside uh, tree planting, uh, they've gotten rivers to flow again, and now people can get uh, 
and you'll get water easily. So we're going to couple the full uh, food production system with riparian zone restoration so the water will be closer for folks to use for drinking, washing, irrigating, and so on. Then as soon as, soon as uh, we've gone through a cycle, we're going to replicate this much faster. We're going to do this one year at a time. We'll do you know, three schools the first time, and using some of the students, it will go to six, then it goes to 12, then to 24, how far can I do the math, <laughs> 48, and so on as, as years go by. Then we're going to enhance the primate habitat between the corridors, because what's happening is there's inbreeding depression occurring in the various different populations of large primates because there's no new genetic influx from outsiders coming in. Um, so this will allow the chimps to travel down these corridors. These will be planted ex with extra heavy with foods that the chimps prefer and people don't like. So the chimps will have an incentive to stay in their preserves and in their corridors. Then we put this, uh, this timbered buffer zone around it so the chimps uh, will get through there, into there, and there's very little food for a chimp in there. They're not likely to go into the villages and steal food out of the people's gardens because the conflict is happening because humans are encroaching on chimp habitat and the chimps are encroaching on human habitat and that ends up in conflict. And as we know, uh, mostly when it comes to a fight between a human and an animal, humans have a long track record of winning. <laughs> and so then you can see these uh, uh, timbered buffer zones, enhanced primate corridor. This, this represents um, literally millions of acres and uh, um, almost millions of kids. What we're doing, working with the World um, uh, Agroforestry Center, is coming up with the tracking to track, they have the ability to track individual trees that are planted in the system, will have the ability to track uh, the, the people involved, the educational outreach, and I just met uh, the lady uh, today who I'm going to be coordinating with to do the training programs to leapfrog from uh, school to school. They're already doing training programs on the farmer-managed natural regeneration. So this is an example of what we do with the schools. We work with the schools, we incorporate these systems into their education. Just like on the larger farm we saw, we start with excavated channels to manage the water. This is the footpath road, uh, any buildings, the roofs, all the water would be channeled here. Where, where mama comes out and throws out the laundry water, all comes into these channels. So all of these, uh, these uh, berms here that will be planted with uh, food plants will have water here that soaks in instead of running away. Uh, we made these berms. Uh, it's an elevated berm with a, a ridge here and a ridge here and then pits all through it. Um, this was three meters wide, so 10 feet and then 30 feet. This is a hand system. And this is the alley in between where they'll grow their, their maize or their bean or their cassava, which is their staple food crop. You can see some plants growing here. They also grow a lot of eggplant, tomatoes for market, uh, green pepper. And so we started with a system that on the outside edges is shorter plants. We've got pineapple. Uh, then we did ginger. And then trees down the middle of it, various different kinds that grow at different rates from avocados, some timber trees such as grevillea. Uh, nitrogen fixers such as uh, moringa and certain acacias, specifically glyrosidia and um, phytherbia. Uh, we have breadfruit and passion fruit, vine climbing all over it, of course, bananas. Um, the edible greens of a particular kind of cassava is called cassamvu, is all thrown in the system. Uh, just a crazy polyculture of plants in the system that's designed to now have. You notice that this bare field has no firewood available for the family to, to cook with. 
So now we're going to be producing fuel wood. We're going to be cutting uh, chop and drop, drop uh, mulch. Also, certain of these trees is outstanding fodder for the livestock. And uh, seeds from the black pepper tree, it's not black pepper that we eat as a spice, but the seeds from the black pepper tree are a water purifier. You put that in the water, it gets rid of bacteria in the water. And the Jane Goodall Institute has a program called the Roots and Shoots Program. We're going to be disseminating this through their Roots and Shoots uh, program in Uganda, into Rwanda, Democratic Republic of Congo, and around the world they have over 130,000 Roots and Shoots school programs, and we've already trained the leadership core of the Roots and Shoots in restoration agriculture slash permaculture, and we're going to be continuing training with them through the years so that the whole uh, Goodall Institute and Roots and Shoots program is educated in growing our own food and restoring ecologies around the world. A lot of mulch is, is used in these pits. Um, you know, leaves from, from the trees themselves go into those pits to decay. So this is our fertility center. This is where they'll also dump um, uh, uh, wastewater, gray water, or your night water. Instead of just peeing outside now, now they pee in buckets and then they dump it in the system for fertilizer during the day. And, and fertility demands in the tropics is actually quite great because these plants never stop growing. It's, it's, uh, it's year-round. They may slow down in the rainy season, but they don't stop. By year three, the alley is growing. This is an eggplant crop in here now. The trees are starting to produce, start to produce uh, papaya within three or four months or so. By year four, we, we have food security, and there's a year-round supply of food. These, these people, once they've gotten into a maize and beans culture, as you grow all this food during, you get it established in the rainy season, you harvest it, and then you sit around and starve for the rest of the year uh, and, and have various different malnutrition diseases. Well, you got now have a year-round food supply and a year-round supply of various different um, vitamins and minerals. You've got pomegranates in here, too, over on the left. Uh, and uh, here's a picture of me, Babu Mupandamiti, Grandpa Who Plants Trees. By year five, you know, there's a nutritional diversity they just never had before. Uh, these are uh, a winged bean, um, so they can grow in the understory. Management of the canopy is where this system is at right now. They're going to have to start removing trees to allow enough sun into the understory to grow. By year, started really in year three, they started to have an economic surplus, uh, and there was a challenge in that everybody would take their papayas to town which is a tiny little village, and sit on the side of the road and try to sell papayas to their neighbors. Well, anybody who's doing this system in a district now has papayas, so why do they want to buy papayas? So people have a direct personal experience that they can't sell their fruit, and so they're convinced that they have too much papayas. And so what we have to convince them is, no, you don't have too many papayas. You don't have enough papayas because what we do is we form now a farmer co-op that collects all of the papayas, put it on a truck, and drives it to town on Friday and sells it to the distributor. The problem is you sell your papayas during papaya season, then you're out of business until the next fruit uh, comes in um, into production, and that would be mango. In, in this region, papaya and mango was all that they grew. Well, now we're growing something throughout the whole entire year, so that truck has a reason to go to town every single Friday of the year with stuff that was truly grown at an ecological surplus, People are feeding their families now. We had three testimonials yesterday that I didn't get the re recording of, um, of people that have doubled and tripled the yields off their off of their farms, not in any one single crop, but in multiple different crops. The total yield, site yield, is greater than it was. So now we bring um, farmer-owned companies, bring extra value to the rural communities. And look at the difference in the soil, from the dry, gravelly sand to all the decomposing or organic matter. 
with, uh, especially with nitrogen fixing trees, uh, livestock integrated into the system, who needs to buy fertilizer? And so what we have to do is we have to do ecological restoration and, and build, create better preferred habitat for chimps. These, these are our closest cousins in the wild. Uh, can't we like have a little compassion on these guys and not, not wipe them off the face of the earth? Well, some of the people who are doing the wiping out, some of the most vulnerable people on planet earth who have the most food insecurity. We can have ecological restoration and agriculture simultaneously, that's restoration agriculture, uh, and these folks can drive the whole system and have a better livelihood while doing it. And that's a, a sum total of how restoration agriculture works. I'll go back to that last slide again, right? Wow. Um, so that was, that's an expanded version of the presentation I gave yesterday at this workshop um, sponsored by the World Agroforestry. Um, World Agroforestry awesome, Mark. A federation or, or <laughs> okay. Yeah, thanks. It's Jeff, uh, now 3.30 in the morning, Kenya time. Yeah, you Go have ahead. been amazing. Um, if, anybody, uh, if anybody liked that, why don't you throw a one into the question and just uh, say yes. There was one question we had. If anybody else has any, you guys can throw them in. Please do now. I want to let Mark get back and get some sleep here in a second. But the question was when you were talking about the, the gradation in the field, and you can stay on the slide even, Mark, um, and about the... Uh, how did you determine your your angle? You, you talked about one percent, so I, I doubt you had really sophisticated uh, laser and such. How did, how did you determine the gradation? Boy, see now you're going to have to take a class with me. We made an A-frame with uh, three sticks nailed together, and I always go with. I bring with me a torpedo level um, because I've been able to get a torpedo level to go into the country. I've had a laser level confiscated because it showed evidence that I was coming to the country to work. And I didn't have a work permit. Um, so they confiscated my laser level, but they haven't taken away the torpedo levels. So I bring a torpedo level, put it on the crossbar of the A-frame, and what you've made, a big A with a level in it, that's a sextant. That is a navigational tool that is thousands and thousands of years old, and if you want, you can use an A-frame and you can navigate a canoe from here to Greenland, you can go around the world with it. So you, uh, the feet on the on the A-frame, uh, I typically put it five feet wide. So as you march across the landscape, it'll determine your linear distance. Then you tip it in one to one direction, it'll give you a different level, and you measure down from it. So it's a you go out 100 feet, and then you drop one foot. That's a one percent slope. And we try to keep things at 1% or less steep than 1% um, when we do that. Sometimes it, we can't keep it at that level. We do other tricks along the way, and that's time for that's another uh, series of webinars. This was uh, just trying to summarize, show you what we're doing and, and how we're applying this in, in uh, East Africa. Awesome. By the way, lots of people, I don't know if you, you're able to see it, Mark, because you weren't able to see the questions. Got yeah, one, 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 and all that. So everybody's really excited. Guys, I don't know, again, remember, go back and listen to this again. There was another question, is it can you get replays? Yes. If you are not already registered for the um, membership site, our economic action team, and this is your first webinar, you'll get an invitation in the next day or so. And then all of these webinars are recorded so far. Hopefully tonight will work also. And uh, you'll be able to watch the replays. And boy, that was, that was quite some message from Mark. Um, and uh, any other questions? I don't see anything here yet. Anybody's got anything? 
I'll give you just a couple seconds here too, anybody who wants, if you'd like to say anything live to Mark, maybe just raise your hand up on the, uh, on the screen and we'll let you talk for a second if you've got, if you'd like to do that. Um, and um, I'm not seeing any new questions. Oh, well, Mark, here we go. Here we go. We do got. Well, you do have one. What do you wish would be? What do you wish you would have known 15 to 20 years ago? This is. I. I I'm gonna. Um, that comes from Mason. I'm not. Sh I think just you take the interpretation of that, Mark. So, what do you wish you would have known 15 to 20 years ago? Oh boy, what do I wish I would have known? Well, I, what's important actually, and, and this is something that within the permaculture realm, one of the permaculture principles is use small and uh, slow solutions instead of making big mistakes. And that has been interpreted within the permaculture movement as permaculture projects have to be small scale. Well, when you do things small scale, you don't provide enough to feed yourself, you don't provide enough surplus to actually have an economic uh, threshold that now it's a viable business. Scale is important. Well, so that's one of the reasons why I went with the uh, restoration agriculture. What differentiates restoration agriculture from straight permaculture is that we're going to imitate the natural ecosystems that are already there. So if, if we now apply that to the Corn Belt in the USA, let's do a small, careful change and let's convert this corn and soybean desert. One small change, let's change it back to a savanna that it once was using these techniques, using oak and cherry and apple and hazelnut and grape, uh, raspberry and, and grazing and animals, that's, that is a small change to go from its current state now as a bare black field to a savanna, very small change. And because we're using the indigenous plants, we're not committing any ecological crime and we're not going to have any, any kind of surprise biting us in the butt. Uh, and University of Missouri Columbia has, has research that shows this. Uh, World Agroforestry Center has research that shows this. When you do agroforestry systems um, and, and learn how to manage them properly, you actually have increased yields, not decreased yields. You'll have less yield of corn, for example, um, and less yields in chestnut, uh, if you're growing chestnut or hazelnut, than you would if you were growing them as a, as a monocrop. But the combined yield, you, you get this uh, uh, additional surplus by having more species in the system. And ecological research shows that what makes the total site yield is the total species diversity. The more species that we can cram in here, uh, the more total site yield we will have. And we need a certain scale. We need to have enough kasamvu to actually feed our family regularly through the whole year. We need enough bananas. We need enough, you know, uh, um, pomegranates, passion fruit, etc., and to have enough for a surplus. Uh, so then we, we have to now partner and all of our surplus goes with our neighbors. So we need to, what I wish I knew 20 years ago was how important it is to actually have these systems to be large enough to produce real food and real economic surplus ecologically, not just nibble snacks in a cool backyard. Um, but this is a real food production technology and it actually is worldwide uh, these systems are are uh, expanding almost exponentially. Of course, it's in the early stages of expanding exponentially, but you know millions and millions of hectares across the world are being done this way now that haven't been done in the past, and we don't hear about in the U.S. So, scale awesome. is important. 
That's a great answer. Um, J, JP says thanks, Mark. So he says thanks from JP. Karen's got a good question. Um, she, she says that when you say level sill and drive through pond, is it one and the same or are those different? <laughs> you can turn a drive through pond into a level sill, and sometimes we do, where we make the downhill edge of that drive through pond perfectly level and we pack it, and it becomes a discharge point. They're not necessarily one and the same. A drive-through pond is just uh, extra surge capacity in the system, and, and it's located when a swale crosses over a primary valley. That's where we put a, a, uh, a drive-through pond. A level sill is uh, anywhere that you intentionally discharge the water through the system in a sheet. Um, uh, so most times when I'm doing an install, the level sill is just a level sill. It's not a drive-through. Um, there's actually a Jack Spearco, I don't I think his permit ethos posted it or the survival podcast posted it, a little video of a project I was working on with them in uh, I believe it was Arkansas at an Alcoa aluminum um, property. There we made the drive-through ponds, we made them into level sills so that they the primary valley as your swale crosses a primary valley, it represents a low spot instead of building up so that the water would continue moving one direction or the other. We just kept it level so that water went to that spot, it would discharge in a sheet and go down to the next system. And that'll be, that's described in one of those videos. I don't know how you're going to find it. <laughs> well, well so, yes and yeah. no. It could be it could be one of the, it could be one and the same, um, but usually not. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll help with that. I think Jeffrey was trying to ask a question out loud, but wait just a second, Jeff. we got one more here. This is a comment and a question, and I'm going to interpret it a little bit. Eric asks and says, um, it, um, are there ideas that you're working on with the Jane Goodall Foundation to create agricultural systems where you can actually have chimps throughout the system while still providing a plenty of needs for the, he, he jokingly said, not so furry bipeds, um, that is opposed to having buffer zones where you just you know where you stop having the, the the chimps come out into the areas where humans are at. Is there a potential for more specific um, integration, or do they have to have this in, this segregation to some extent? I think that's the, the question. Yeah, the the red lines that you saw uh, up here, those are corridors of enhanced chimp habitat, I and mean, we're just starting working on those. Um, and then all around the villages and on the this side of the you know greenish line is where the people systems go. You got to understand if you've ever had like squirrel problems or rodent problems or deer problems in your system, you have no idea uh, what problems are like until you have chimps and hippos. Uh, chimps, they're just as smart as probably 75 percent of of human beings. They're amazingly intelligent animals. And if you think that you have stuff that's safe and secure from chimps, we don't, we have uh, cultural um, technology and we have moral technology where we have, you know, an internal guidance system that tells us what's good and what's right. Whereas they still really, they also have a culture, but they are totally um, fixated on taking care of themselves. And they do a really good job of that. And uh, most interactions are initiated by chimps are to take care of themselves 
and they, they, they don't have that empathic uh, sense that we do where we would have empathy on an other and collaborate that way. They want what you've got growing in the ground and they're going to take it and you can put up fences, they'll climb over it, they can unlock doors, they're amazingly smart uh, beings and so to have chimps wandering around with us as you know, uh, happy loving brother and sisters, I don't necessarily see that happening anytime soon. Maybe after we stabilize our own human culture and, and, and have a, a permanent agriculture uh, and then maybe after we stabilize the ecological destruction that's causing these animals to get pushed further and further back into, into their territories, maybe once we stabilize things we can start to figure out how to interact a little bit more collaboratively. And it is being done, but uh, I don't think I don't think any time that's a big leap to happen really fast, both on the human side and the chimp side. Because you think about the the people who live here, they're accustomed to having um, chimp problems, like like I have squirrel problems, and it and it's not always easy to deal with. So maybe someday that's maybe that's your job. And uh, I kid you not, it's it is it is still a quarter or four in the morning here, and I've got to get up at eight. And I yeah, got everybody, everybody, today, is, so. <laughs> everybody uh, Mark's got to work, and Jeffrey, you can maybe save your question if you don't mind. And then I just put in, Daniel, thank you so much. I put in a note that gives the uh, URL for a video that may be the one that uh, Mark was talking about from Spurco. So I put that in the chat. Mark, thank you. You can go ahead and sign off. Um, I want to give just a couple other little things for the group. Um, we'll keep this going for just a minute. So, Mark, thanks. And uh, you can you can jump off or or uh, I think if just I listen however you like. Might close. Let me let me try this. No, I don't uh, think so. I think we'll stay open. Um, there we go. Is that? Is this? I think we'll keep going. <laughs> okay. All right. Good night, I'll take, you guys. Yeah, I think um, we'll just take this. I'll take the screen back. Um, and that would be me. Actually, I don't think I need it. You guys hear me still? Jeffrey, you still hear me? Yep. Yep, I can hear you. Great. Um, I'm not gonna. I'm just gonna leave the screen where it is here. Um, did you? What was your? Did you have a comment, or would you? Did you have a question for Mark that everybody else can maybe hear the question, and then we'll get it answered. It was more of a comment. I was. I was just gonna have him talk about uh, some of the uh, things you have to think about when constructing ponds in uh, Tanzania or Kenya, and that is. Uh, mosquitoes and spread of diseases and talk about how you incorporate that into the design of the ponds but we can get into that uh, next time yeah we can talk about that so Jeffrey's also in the same state what time is it where you're at Jeffrey? <laughs> it's uh, 1.45 a.m. yeah 140. yeah he, he's sounding a little tired you guys have been an awesome audience I want to make sure to acknowledge all our helpers here Deb out in Colorado, Stephanie in Colorado. Mark actually is uh, another Mark. We call him Mark from Bangladesh. He's online and, and he's helping us. And so, boy, we really are. We're on, what, how many continents? So we're in, uh, we're in Europe, North four. America, um, four continents for sure. And that's just of the, of the people helping, let alone all of you that are attendees. Um, again, you can get, you can get your uh, replays. Uh, not just for this, and there's been nine of these presentations now, um, but also for the ones that we do on, on chicken farming as well as on uh, aquaculture. And then finally, um, we're starting a new session next week on Thursday um, related to uh, 
alternative health concepts. And so we'll, uh, we'll be talking about that topic. And I mentioned before, we'll start another couple weeks or so after that, one that we'll do on alternative currencies. And, and we'll just keep expanding. Um, we're getting real close to 1,000 members now. I'm just going to say this to, to kind of finish up. You guys are fortunate. You're all involved. You're members. You're active with this. I've seen many of you on here multiple times. Starting sometime when we hit about 1,500 members, we're going to start charging for the new people. Not for you if you're staying active, you're staying involved, but for new people. So uh, um, there's a lot of time and effort being put into this by people. And so we're going we're gonna to have a, a monthly fee for those people that are new after that time. And, and again, we'll, we'll end up at some point here where we have 30 or 40 different speakers a week. And they'll all be recorded information. And that's, that's important. But the more important thing is you guys interacting with each other. Go online, go to the Facebook page, meet each other, tell your story, ask people for help. Don't be afraid to reach out. Tell other people what you could do. So I would suggest go to the Facebook page. Again, that's another one. If you're not on our secret Facebook page, send me a request for an invitation and I will send you, uh, you'll get invited by Facebook, not by me. You'll get an invitation specifically from Facebook. This page doesn't show up. You can't search for it. And that's intentional. We just want this to be our community. It's a little bit like the old saying is what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And that's kind of what we're, we're really trying to do here. We're trying to create a community, a team. So you know, go in there and maybe offer up. Here's, here's a skill set or here's something that you can do. Say what it is and say you could potentially offer this to others. And then the same way the other direction, say what it is you need. What are some things that you could use that other people could help you with? Um, a lot of people have gone in there already and put up what they're doing, what their what their lives and what their circumstances are. And please do that if you haven't. Um, and again, thank you everybody for being here. We've gone, uh, you know, an hour and 45 minutes or so, a little more than that tonight. And we'll have the replay up probably not first thing tomorrow, but maybe tomorrow evening. And um, the chicken uh, replay, I still need to get up that from last night. And anyway, thanks everybody. Have a great rest of your day or night or whatever time it is for you, and we'll see you again next week. I'm going to stop recording, and then I'm going to end the webinar. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. You bet. Thank you, Jeff. Have a good sleep. Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the Eat Community Podcast.